We're in the book of James chapter 4. If you have Bibles, I'll invite you to open in them to James 4. Uh, And we are taking communion in a little bit. If you came in late and you didn't get communion elements, just raise your hand and some of our ushers will come around and get those to you. Uh, James, James, as we've been saying, James was the half-brother of Jesus, leader of the Jerusalem Council. This is one of the earliest letters in the New Testament that we have. It gives us a really good look at the soul of what we might call radical Christianity, or Christianity at the root, primitive Christianity. And in this section here, James chapter 4, he really addresses an issue. It's actually so funny. We always talk about this on our teaching team. We say, man, isn't it so crazy how the series we're going through is exactly what's happening in our culture now? Well, it might just be that the Bible is always very relevant to everything that human beings are facing. And uh, I just love this piece of text here because it really does hit some stuff that we're wrestling with as a culture straight on the head. And it gives us a diagnosis. What does it look like to move forward in a healthy way? James chapter 4, if you're there, shout at me and say I'm there. All right, that's good. The left side of the room, pretty good. How are we doing over here, guys? You find it? We good? Some of you? All right, all right. I see you over there. Okay, that's good. James chapter 4. Let's open our hearts and pray. Oh, Jesus, we love you. Jesus, we love you. Jesus, we love you. And you are the one who says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, you say, and my burden is light. What if that were true? What if you were the God who doesn't, you didn't put anything heavy or ill-fitting on us? What? If, Jesus, what if, Jesus, you were the one who gives us the kingdom? What if you were the one who gives us life? What if you were the one who gives us our humanity back to us? What if? What if what you place on us doesn't crush us? What if what it does is it liberates us? What if that were true? Well, tonight, we're asking that you would give us faith to believe and to dare and to hope that that may be true, that all of the things that you speak to us are for our good, that what you're doing even when the things that you speak to us are hard, that those things are liberating things, that your words are liberating, healing, life-giving words. Would you help us trust that tonight? Help us trust that tonight. We thank you for that. We thank you that Paul said that all scripture is God-breathed and it's useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness so that men and women of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All scripture is God-breathed. That means that here and now tonight, This scripture, you, Lord Jesus, you're taking it and you're filling it with breath from your nostrils and you're giving it back to us as the very life of God. We trust that tonight, that as we hear these scriptures, as we listen to what they have to say to us, that the very breath of God, the power of the Holy Spirit will come to us, will liberate us, will set us free, will make us more fully your people. We are trusting you for that. And so we ask tonight that the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. James says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you don't have, and so you kill. You covet, but you can't get what you want, and so you quarrel and you fight, and you don't have, James says, because you don't ask God. And when you do ask, you don't receive, because You're asking with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know, he says, that friendship with the world means enmity against 
God. It's a kind of hostility to God, okay? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. You set yourself against God. Or do you think that the scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but God gives us more grace. And that's why scripture says God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. So this is what James says you're gonna do. Submit yourselves then to God and resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, he says, mourn, wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, don't slander one another, he says. And anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. And when you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but you're sitting in judgment over it. But there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy you. That was chipper, huh? But you, he says, who are you to judge your neighbor, brothers and sisters? This is the word of the Lord and all God's people said. Thanks be to God. James already in this book has alluded to what he's talking about in this bit of text here. In fact, if you back up just a little bit in James 3 and verse 14, James has already addressed the issue of envy and rivalry and what it does in the community. Look at verse 14 of chapter 3. He says, If you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom, he says, doesn't come down from heaven, but it's earthly, unspiritual, and it's, what's the word there? It's demonic. It comes straight from the pit of hell, which we're going to see in a second. But where you have, he says, envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. So James has already told us that where we have envy and selfish ambition, there we have opened the door for hell. But what he didn't do in chapter 3 is he didn't explain how that works, okay? He didn't unpack it for us. How is it that envy and selfish ambition and desire create such chaos in our communities and chaos in our families and chaos in society? And here in this piece of text, in James chapter 4, he begins unpacking it. He begins addressing exactly how envy, rivalry, selfish ambition, desire, how they destroy community. And what he does is he helps us see that the primary spiritual problem with envy is twofold. It's twofold. The first problem with it, you can put the slide up on the screen, is that envy is an expression of disordered, sinful desire. So already the moment we begin envying what somebody else has or who somebody else is, we're giving expression to this disordered desire. God has made us for desire and he's made us with desires. But when our desires start doing this thing, this envying thing, we know that there's something disordered with them. They're not calibrated to reality the way that they need to be. So it's an expression of disordered, sinful desire. And just to that extent, it also makes us enemies of other people, okay? It makes us enemies of other people. When I start desiring the things that you have, when I start desiring what you are, when I think that that belongs to me in some way, that something that you have somehow will complete something in me, the moment that I do that, brothers and sisters, what I've created is an adversarial relationship, right? So now we're no longer in a communion of friendship. Now there's no longer sharing. Now there's no longer a mirroring of the divine life as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But now I have to see you as some kind of an enemy. And the moment I begin to do that, the moment I begin to see you as some kind of an enemy, then communion, community, 
life breaks down and things start spinning really fast. Are you with me tonight, brothers and sisters? This is an old, old story. It's an old story. It's old as the scriptures. You remember in Genesis chapter two, Genesis chapter three, that we learn that in the garden of Eden, God placed the man and the woman there to keep it and to tend it and to protect it. And the scripture says that he placed in the garden the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And one day the tempter came along and said to them, hey, uh, you know, what did God say about those trees? And Eve says, well, about that tree over there, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the Lord doesn't want us to eat it and he doesn't want us even to touch it because he knows that, you know, we'll surely die when that happens. And listen to what the tempter says to Eve. Verse four of Genesis three, the tempter says, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will what? You will be like God, knowing good and evil. What does the serpent do to Adam and Eve's relationship with God? Well, God has something that you need. God is holding out on you. Something that God has and something that God is, you don't have. And so what the serpent does is he plants a wayward desire in the hearts of this original couple, and it breaks communion with them. We know that when they took from that tree, they all of a sudden were filled with shame and they had to be driven from the garden. Communion with God breaks down. The root cause of it, brothers and sisters, is envy. It's envy. They wanted something that God had that they thought that unless they had it in that moment, they would die in some way. And it turns out that they did die. And one of the great, very interesting Jewish intertestamental books written between the close of the Old Testament and the start of the New Testament, the wisdom of Solomon actually, Solomon actually puts a very fine point on him. And this is the wisdom of Solomon, chapter two and verse 23, where it says that God created human beings for incorruption and he made them in the image of his own eternity. But through what? Through the devil's envy, death entered the world and those who belong to his party experience it. In other words, why did the devil tempt that first pair in the first place? Because the devil wanted to be like God. And if the devil can't be like God, then what the devil's gonna do is he's gonna try to hit God hard. And so the devil becomes the devil through the envy of God. And what does he do? He drags human beings into his envious, murderous, death-filled wake. Brothers and sisters, we on the same page tonight. See, this is earthly, unspiritual, it's demonic. It's from, it's from hell. And human beings, as long as there have been human beings, have had a difficult time escaping it. Genesis chapter four, just one Chapter later, you know Adam and Eve, they gave birth to twins, Cain and Abel. And the scripture says that Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain was a tiller of the grounds. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering from the fruit of the ground and Abel brought to the firstlings of his flock and their, their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. And so Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, won't you be accepted? And if you don't do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Verse eight, Cain said to his brother Abel, let us go out to the field. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Guys, you have to believe that when James was writing his text to his churches, he had this story in the back of his mind. Cain rose up against Abel and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? 
And Cain said back to him, I don't know, am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground and now you're cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hands. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on earth. Don't you see that the very thing that happened to Adam and Eve now happens to Cain? The Cain looks at Abel, and Abel who had given the offering that God looked on with favor. Cain all of a sudden is insulted by that. Well, if God looks with favor on Abel, then maybe that means that he's not going to look on me with favor, right? Maybe there isn't enough to go around for me. And so now Abel, instead of being the blessing in Cain's mind, the brothers should be, Abel all of a sudden is an adversary. At the very least, in Cain's mind, Abel has something that Cain needs that he feels is crucial to his existence. And if he eliminates Cain, maybe he'll get that. At a maximum, maybe Abel's just standing in the way of Cain having a good relationship with God. Either way, Abel must be eliminated and blood was shed, brothers and sisters. We've had a difficult time escaping the story and the scripture knows the sad story of envy as it plays out in the scriptural record. Think about Hagar and Sarah. You remember that story? Hagar conceives by Abraham and Sarah is filled with jealousy and what does she do? She brings misery to Hagar. She sees Hagar as an adversary and pushes her away. Think about Jacob and Esau. Jacob sees what his brother Esau has, the firstborn, the rights of the firstborn and the blessing. And so he connives to try to get that and as he steals that, what happens to Esau? Esau is filled with murderous rage and comes back at Jacob and there's chaos in the house of God. Think about Joseph and his brothers. When Joseph said to his brothers about the dreams that he had and what God had put in his heart, the brothers were threatened by that. And so what did they do? They concoct a plan to do away with Joseph. Our lives will be better if this threat to our existence is not here. Think about Pharaoh and the children of Israel as they were enslaved in Egypt. Pharaoh is growing jealous and envious that the people of God are blessed. And so he oppresses them continually. And what he is spiritually blind to is the fact that if he was good to that people, then good would have come to him. Brothers and sisters, I'm here to say to you tonight that life is not a zero-sum game. Knocking stuff over tonight. It's not a zero-sum game. But you live in your father's world. You live in your father's world. It's a world of abundance. It's a world of goodness. It's a world of infinite blessing. It is a world where there is enough to go around. It is a world where at the center of it, at the center of it, lives a God who is all goodness and light and hope and truth. James says earlier in the book that our God is the father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows and every good and gift. Don't you get it? But the Lord is always showering gifts upon us. That to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, don't you think that God would have given them straight from his hand the knowledge of good and evil exactly when they needed it? But don't you think, and this is how God pleads with Cain, don't you think that if Cain had just turned his heart to the Lord, that Cain would have found favor and blessing just like Abel had, don't you think? Don't you think that if Sarah had just trusted God that she wouldn't have had to mistreat Hagar? And in fact, this is the goodness of God 
that even after Sarah mistreats Hagar, that God is still good to her. But this is our God. He's not limited. He is not limited. And he does not favor one person over the other. But he looks at all of us with the same eyes of love and the same care and the same blessing. And I'm telling you, there is enough on the table for all of that. But sin is that thing in us that tricks us into believing that there will not be enough for us. When I believe that I must have what you have to be happy, I have opened the door to spiritual and social catastrophe, brothers and sisters. When I believe that I must have what you have or to expand it, when I believe that you are standing in the way of me getting what I think I need to be happy, I have opened the door to spiritual and social catastrophe, which is why James says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? He says, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you don't have, so what do you do? I gotta eliminate the person that has the thing that I need. You covet and you can't get, so what, you, what do you do? You start quarreling and you start fighting. You see if you can't wrest it out of the hand of that person. Or if you're quarreling and you're fighting, your wars and your anger with that person aren't enough, this is what you do in verse 11. He says, brothers and sisters, don't slander one another. Don't you get it? But this is yet one more strategy that we use to try to get the things that we think we need that other people have. You know what we do? We destabilize their reputations. And so we go around and we start spreading slander about them. We start planting lies in the heads of other people about them because we think to ourselves, if I can just destabilize them enough, if I can knock them off their podium, if I can knock them off their platform, if I can knock them off their pedestal, then I'll get the things that I think I need. He says that when you speak against a brother or sister, you judge them, you speak against the law and you judge it, what you have done in that moment, if you, you, you have raised yourself to the level of the judge. Brothers and sisters, do I need to tell you tonight that that is blasphemous? That when we speak against other people, when we use our words to try to tear people down, when we talk about life as though it's a zero-sum game, when we plant the seeds of a destabilized reputation with other people, we're committing blasphemy, guys. We're rising up and we're taking the place of God in our lack of faith. Paul says in one of his letters that everything that does not come from faith is it's sin. What happens when I don't believe that God is for me? What happens when I don't believe that God has enough for me and not just enough, but more than enough? What happens when I believe that if I don't try to fight to get the things that I need, that I'll never have enough? What happens then is that I start wars and battles. That's exactly, by the way, the language that James uses. When he says what causes fights and quarrels among you, he uses these two Greek words, polemoi and makoi, wars and battles. When there's contested territory, wars and battles are the result. And we do this all the time. When you think about the political rhetoric of our country, we say things like this. We say, oh, you know, they're trying to ruin our country. We say, oh, they're spoiling our way of life. That's the problem with those people our way of life, our country. We say, oh, we'll lose everything we've worked to achieve if we let them have their way. You know, they'll fill in the blank. Guys, to the degree that we have cherished those thoughts in our heart, that is the degree to which 
we have entered into a relationship with the world that is totally inappropriate. And James actually goes out of his way to say that that relationship is an adulterous relationship. In our baptism, we are pledged to Christ Jesus as our Lord, our spouse, our groom of which we are the bride. But when we start saying things like that, when we start cherishing thoughts like that in our hearts, what it shows is that we have been destabilized at the level of our relationship with Jesus and we have toyed with the idea of putting another ring on our finger. That what we believe is we belong more to this or we belong more to that. We've entered into an agreement with the world that is not appropriate. James says, you adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And the moment you start doing that, when you enter into that spirit and that framework and you start seeing other people as your enemies, that's how you know you have wandered into spiritually dangerous territory. When you start thinking that the Republicans are your enemies, when you start thinking that the Democrats are your enemies, when you start thinking that progressive Christians out there are your enemies or that fundamentalist Christians out there are your enemies, when you start thinking that black people are your enemies or white people are your enemies or Hispanics are your enemies or Asian people are your enemies, whenever you start thinking that way, you have exited the sphere of the kingdom of God. Am I preaching to somebody tonight? I need to know that tonight. You've exited the sphere of the kingdom of God because you know what Paul says? Paul says, our struggle is not with flesh and blood. But with the rulers and the authorities and the principalities and the powers of the dark air and the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly realms, Paul says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, which means that if it has flesh and blood, it ain't your enemy. Scripture says that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. The scripture says that the walls between Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free, that those have all been brought down in Christ. And when we cherish mentalities in our hearts that make enemies of other people, we have wandered away from our first love. The scripture calls us to come back to our first love to have our desires laid bare before the Lord, to let him transform our desires. We need to have our desires transformed. Brothers and sisters, the problem is spiritual. The problem is spiritual. The problem with our country, the problem with the fighting, the problem with the hatred, the problem with the vitriol, it's not a political problem per se. It has structural implications and expressions, but it's not first about the structures. What it's first about is the human heart the problem is spiritual. The solution is, the, is spiritual. We need God. But God is the only one that can get us out of it, which is why James says, this is what you're gonna do. When you find yourself in that space where you have created enemies, where God has created friends, if you find yourself in that space where you have created adversaries, where God and Christ has created brothers and sisters, don't boast about it and do not deny the truth and do not pretend that things are better than they are and please, and for the love of all that's holy, don't mask it in spiritual language 
And don't give religious justifications for your envy and your pride and your wrath and your hatred for people, okay? Don't go do that. If you're gonna do it, just do it. Leave God out of it. Thank you very much. This is what Paul says, this is what James says you're gonna do. This is what you're gonna do. He says you're gonna submit yourself to God, okay? We're not gonna boast about it. We're not gonna deny the truth. We're not gonna pretend that it's better than it is, okay? This is what we're going to do. When we find that there are desires in us that are setting us in a competitive relationship with others, when we find that there is anger rising up in our soul, when we find that we have turned the ables of our life into enemies, he says, submit yourself then to God. You resist the devil and he will flee from you. He says, come near to God and God will draw near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. He says, grieve, mourn, wail, change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. James is saying if the problem is spiritual and the solution is spiritual, you need God. You have to come back to the lover of your souls. In fact, that's what James says earlier in the chapter, in chapter four. He says, don't you understand? Do you think that the scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit that he's planted in us? What happens is we start wandering away in our hearts and God's desire for us is greater than any sinful desire we could ever have for other people's stuff. Are you with me tonight? God's love for us is a jealous love. And you go, that doesn't sound right to me. How can God's love be jealous? Aren't we told that jealousy is a bad thing? I'll tell you why with God, jealousy is not a bad thing. Because God owns you already. And so when God sets his desire on you and me, When God sets his burning desire on you and me, he's not doing something that's improper. He is doing the most proper thing that he can do. What God does is he breaks his heart for us and he aches for us. And because he is infinite God, he does not spread his desire out. But he longs for each person in this room with the same burning jealousy that he's longed for every other human being. He jealously longs for the spirit that he's caused to plant in us. And so what we do As we say with the prophets of Israel, come, let us return to the Lord. Come, let us return to the Lord. Come, let us return to the Lord. We start taking holy words at our lips. We start saying, most merciful God, we confess that we've sinned against you. We're so sorry in thought, word, and deed by what we've done and what we've left undone. We haven't loved you with our whole hearts. We've not loved our neighbors as ourselves. What we're doing is we're submitting our loves to God. We're submitting our desires to God. And we're not hiding from him, but we're asking that the searchlight of the Spirit would suss them out and would show us which desires are holy and which desires are not, which brings up an interesting point. Sometimes the way that we talk about desire in Christianity is we talk about desire as a thing that's evil, a thing that's bad. A desire is a thing that if we're gonna be holy, desire has to be cut off. Desire has to be thwarted in some way. And I think that there's something to that, the mortification, the old timers would have called it the mortification of desire. I think that that's a thing in Christianity, but I think that there's a bigger story that we need to situate ourselves in. And C.S. Lewis draws attention to it in one of the finest essays ever written. If you have time, look it up and read it, The Weight of Glory. He says that the New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end within itself. He says, we are told to deny ourselves and to take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ. And nearly every description 
of what we shall ultimately find if we do so contains an appeal to what? To desire. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, then I submit to you that this notion has crept in from Immanuel Kant and the Stoics and has no part in the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, he says, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. The scripture says that he fills the hungry and he satisfies the thirsty with good things. Do you think that God wants to leave your desires empty? I say to you, no. I say what God wants to do is the deepest desires of your heart. In fact, the scripture says it in Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord and he will, he will give you the desires of your heart. And you know, I think that, that has two meanings. And it's not just that he satisfies the desires of our heart. I think that he satisfies those desires of the heart to the extent that they are good. But those desires of our heart that are not good, that they're set on evil things, you know what I think the Lord does? I think the Lord and his jealous desire for us that he descends into those wayward desires and he breaks them, he melts them, and he remakes them so that they can be attached to all that he is and has. God is not trying to thwart our desires. What God wants from each one of us is that our desire would be inflamed at all times. That we'd love the Lord our God with all of our hearts and all of our souls and all of our minds and all of our strength and we would also love our neighbors as ourselves. He's not trying to kill desire. He's trying to resurrect desire in the kingdom of God. He's not trying to cut off desire. He's trying to reorganize desire. He's not just trying to mortify desire, but to use the ancient language, he's trying to vivify desire. God wants us to long for him with all that we are and have and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And I'm telling you tonight, as God is my witness, as Jesus is alive, that our world will be healed to the extent that there is a group of people who are willing to submit themselves to the sane, sound, burning love of God. St. Augustine said that therefore he alone is blessed who both has all things which he desires and desires nothing amiss. And when we come into the presence of God, what happens is we find that God begins to melt us down and break us. That what he does is he begins satisfying our desires and also remaking our desires so that we no longer desire amiss. And we also find that when we love the Lord our God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength, we realize that we already have everything that we could ever hope for. See, envy and war and chaos and strife, what they come from is a sense in our hearts that we don't already have everything that we need. Paul says that you already have all that you need in him. The psalmist said, the Lord is my shepherd, therefore shall not want. One of the old translations says, the Lord is my shepherd, I have no lack. Because you realize that when you have God, you have everything. When you have God, you have everything. And so brothers and sisters, with that in your hearts, I wanna invite you to stand tonight if you're able to. 
And this is our moment tonight to come, to come. I cannot tell you how many times in my own life I have felt that anger, angry desire burning in me. And I've come into the presence of God and there's something about the presence of God that it just undoes that. It pacifies the need, things that need to be pacified and it burns away the things that need to be burned away and it also awakens all kinds of holy desire in us. The cruelest thing that I could do to you after a message like this is just send you out and say, go fix it. <laughs> what we need to do is we need to return to the Lord. And so with that in your hearts, as we prepare our hearts for communion, I want to invite you to make this your prayer, a prayer of confession and repentance. Say it with me tonight. We say, most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways. To the glory of your name, amen. Lord, that's what we're asking for tonight. We're asking that you would not just forgive us, but certainly do that, but we're asking also that you would come and make us delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. We're asking that the promises of the new covenant would be true for us tonight, that you'd come tonight and you'd take out our hearts of stone and you'd give us a heart of flesh. You'd take, you'd take those stony parts of our heart and cut them away and you'd give us soft hearts before you and soft hearts before the world around us. So come tonight, we pray. And we're not gonna hide, but we're gonna bring all of our misery and all of our despair and all of our wayward longing to you. And we ask tonight that you would transform it Grant that we're asking in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, all God's people said, brothers and sisters, I have good news for you tonight. Scripture says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That if anybody is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. If you can agree with that tonight, if that awakens a hallelujah in your heart, would you give God praise tonight? We say hallelujah. We say thank you, Jesus, for that.